Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Mark Opler speaking. Thank you for joining us here today with Dr. Leslie Citrome. Dr. Citrome, before we begin, maybe you could just give our listeners a little bit of background about yourself, how you got into clinical research and psychiatry, and why it matters. Certainly. You know, after graduating from my residency program, I went on and took a clinical job at a VA running a psychiatric intensive care unit, then went on in an administrative position at a state hospital. But shortly thereafter, I wanted really a change. I, administration wasn't for me, basically, and I wanted to do something more in the research realm, thought that might sound interesting and be interesting. And then joined the staff at the Nathan Klein Institute for Psychiatric Research, operated by the New York State Office of Mental Health. And I was hired, actually, to start up a unit, which is very similar to my prior uh, work uh, clinically, but with a twist. This unit would be focused on research and evaluation of the chronically mentally ill who would find themselves admitted to a state hospital, in this case, Rockland Psychiatric Center. And guided through my mentor, Dr. John Volovka, Jan Volovka, he uh, really taught me the ropes in how to uh, implement a clinical trial and uh, ultimately how to design them and how to interpret them. And I learned a lot from him. I owe a lot. Uh, in, so I owe my career to, to Dr. Volovka. And over the years that I spent at the Nathan Klein Institute, which was close to 20, uh, I learned uh, a lot about uh, the importance of uh, making sure you have the right patients in the trial and so on, the right measures and and so on, and uh, got got very into the different types of treatments that we can offer our patients with schizophrenia in particular. Thank you for that. Um, so a couple of questions that I'd like to ask you. To begin, what do you see as the top challenges in clinical trials methodologies and the conduct of trials in psychiatry? Well, the top three challenges um, are, are really quite profound. Uh, one of is the heterogeneity that we see in the disease states that we're studying. When we say someone has schizophrenia, it, it's not really all that precise. And it's hard to uh, actually assemble a group of people with a, a similar disease, especially when we don't know ultimately what the pathophysiology is. So what we call schizophrenia is probably schizophrenias, and I wish there was a better way to better classify these disorders so that we can form more homogeneous groups to study. And right now we, we don't. Perhaps biomarkers in the future would be helpful to uh, help assemble uh, groups of patients that are more similar than different and would be expected to show treatment effects that we can actually use when figuring out if a drug works or not. So that that's our biggest challenge uh, in terms of formulating a, a clinical trial. And then the conduct of the clinical trial is also quite challenging. It has changed really over the years. When I started out, uh, it was mainly academic medical centers that conducted clinical trials, either as part of their own research programs or under contract with pharmaceutical companies to develop new medicines. And basically, the academic medical center has uh, specific priorities in advancing knowledge and not necessarily addressing the financial bottom line, so to speak. And although, uh, it, of course, it was nice to generate income to pay for support staff and soft money to pay for additional research assistance and so on, uh, it was really quite secondary to the scientific mission of the center. 
Uh, that has changed. And now the locus of where clinical trials are conducted for drug development has been primarily in commercial endeavors, commercial uh, operations, whose um, main goal is actually to turn a profit. And that's not a bad thing, of course. And there are commercial sites there that do an excellent, high-quality job in the recruitment and conduct of a, of a study. Uh, but uh, I also have some concerns if they are overextended, uh, are spending a lot of time in different diverse clinical trials and don't develop the internal expertise to address, let's say, uh, the entity that I want to study myself. And uh, if I'm doing uh, running a trial in schizophrenia and responsible for con this conduct of, of this trial of schizophrenia across many different sites, I want those sites to be experienced enough to be able to, to do the job. And the idea of uh, different sites competing for patients over time uh, makes it uh, difficult to incentivize uh, high-quality uh, recruitment efforts. So if people are competing against each other to recruit as many patients as possible within a short period of time, we're going to have uh, some problems in terms of the patients being recruited and heterogeneity increases, and we're going to have less ability to detect a signal between our intervention and placebo soda, uh, for example. So that that's a, a major challenge. And then lastly, uh, a challenge that, you know, is not going to be addressed overnight is what actual outcomes should we be measuring? Should it be purely a pathophysiological uh, outcome, which is uh, hard to do in, in, in in, in our field in, in, in psychiatry. And so we focused on psychopathology rather than pathophysiology. And psychopathology uh, is not always going to address the symptoms that we're going to primarily be caring about in the day-to-day -day treatment of patients. And so we're looking towards other measures so that address functionalities, so, so to speak. And how to choose which one is going to be addressed first, which one is going to be your primary outcome measure, which one is going to be your secondary outcome measure. Those are, are, are big challenges as well. And I, I think we're going to have to think through some of our outcome measures to make studies more clinically relevant to the end user, which is the clinician. Thank you. And, and you know, Dr. Citron, with that in mind, you know, if you were in the process of starting up a clinical trial today, and you are tasked with you know, seeing it through to the end and helping to try to produce a, a, a positive outcome or, or a negative outcome rather than a failed outcome. What are the three things that you should be worried about? What are the sort of the top three concerns or fears or challenges that you think someone, someone leading a study day to day needs to be focused on? Well, my first concern is who's doing the trial? Who am I contracting with to do the trial? Is it a group that is doing uh, lots of different trials across a lot of diverse, diverse disease states and so on? And how much attention can they pay to my individual trial that I need done? And if they are overextended, then I'm going to have uh, uh, probably a rough time getting the numbers of patients that I need from that site or a quality that's high enough uh, that would uh, um, you know, be worthwhile. So that would be my, my first worry is uh, who am I contracting with and are they able to actually do this study in a conscientious uh, manner and um, provide data that is useful? 
the other concern is this site. What what degree of experience do they have uh, in doing the the measures? And uh, if the site themselves are, are expected to do the primary outcome measure, then I want to make sure that they can do um, a reasonable job, a valid job, uh, and a quality job, actually, and that they're also amenable to being trained and, and receive follow-up and so on. Centralized rating can obviate some of these issues, but not completely. So that would be my my primary concern. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, moving from our our fears to our hopes, you know, our, and and you know, thinking now about what's gone well in the past twelve months, you know, are there any developments that you're particularly excited about? Is there anything you can share with us that's happened over the last year that you feel will have a meaningful impact on the lives of our patients? Well, I think it's really exciting that we're starting to explore different. Uh, molecules with or different molecular entities, as they're called, that have a different mechanism of action. And this addresses the heterogeneity issue of the diseases that we treat. And not everyone is the same, and uh, not all the treatments are going to be useful. And for a long time, we've relied on drugs that are very similar rather than have any substantial differences. So I'm really excited to see drugs that are being developed that have really uh, at this point, unique mechanisms of, of action that uh, may help some of our patients where the prior medicines simply did not do the job. That would, that's my, my number one um, area of, of enthusiasm right now. It's very good to hear. And, and you know, I've, I've heard a similar level of excitement about uh, not just about psychiatry, but also about you know, neurology and other other disorders of the central and peripheral nervous system. There's a willingness to explore new mechanisms that we're seeing now that, that certainly has been absent in years prior. So it's it's great to hear it confirmed by no less a personage than yourself. So thanks for that. You know, moving on from there, it's clear from from what you said that there's still room for improvement and and opportunity for advancing the field. What do you think are the top places that we can make a difference in clinical development? What are the areas where folks need to focus their attentions to move psychopharmacology forward? Well, I think we need to be very mindful about the effect sizes of the interventions that we're testing. So it's one thing to establish statistical significance uh, over placebo and that's been an obsession really over the years to make sure that you've met your statistical significant threshold that has been established. But it really doesn't address the question, is this intervention going to be useful in the day-to-day treatment of patients? So now we do have a better appreciation of what would be a minimal uh, clinical improvement that we would, you know, state up front that we would want to exceed. And we have better ways of expressing effect sizes that would be uh, easily translatable to the individual clinicians. So, for example, I've been working many years looking at the metric of number needed to treat and trying to use that as a way of expressing the usefulness of a of a medicine that has already been demonstrated to be statistically significantly superior to placebo, but mm-hmm. how much superior is it? And is it going to be relevant in the day-to-day treatment of patients? Uh, so I'm I'm excited to see that there's a better appreciation of this, and I think we'll see more of it. 
when you listen to the uh, to the audio recordings or read the transcripts of uh, Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committee meetings, you'll hear a lot uh, about uh, what is the actual treatment effect of the intervention being proposed, and is it really important enough to consider uh, this drug as approvable? And this is different from how we used to talk about drugs years ago. And I think uh, pharmaceutical companies are beginning to take notice of this and talking more about the importance of uh, the effect size in their documents that they they prepare for such meetings. So that's that's interesting, and that's going to continue to grow. Thanks, thanks for that. And, and continuing on with predictions, um, what do we have to look forward to in 2019? Do you think there are going to be any surprises on the horizon in uh, clinical research and in drug either drug approvals or similar phenomenon in our area? Are, are there is there going to be a change in the focus of our field? Or are there any programs that you're eager to see read out in the coming 12 months? I think we're going to see some treatments being uh, approved for entities that have had no treatments thus far. So I'm I'm being optimistic here, and it may not be this year or the year after, but certainly within the next five years. I think that's more mm -hmm. fair to say. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'll see treatments for psychosis associated with dementia. Uh, I right. think we'll see uh, alternatives to uh, stimulants for uh, disorders such as binge eating disorder. Mm -hmm. uh, I think we'll see some novel antipsychotics that uh, don't uh, principally work by blocking dopamine D2 receptors, but work through some other mechanism that seems to do a fine job in reducing hallucinations and delusions and free of some debilitating side effects that our current, some of our current medicines carry. So I think there's a lot to look forward to, but it may not be overnight. Well said, as always, Dr. Citrome. So uh, with that, I want to thank you very much for sharing your insights and your time with us today. And we look forward to uh, our next conversation. Thank you again. Thanks so much.